Section 49 of the World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brittany Bogle. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 49, The New Warfare, 1915, by Ian Hay. The trench system has one thing to recommend it. It tidies things up a bit. For the first few months after the war broke out, confusion reigned supreme. Belgium and the north of France were one huge jumbled battlefield, rather like a public park on a Saturday afternoon, one of those parks where promiscuous football is permitted. Friend and foe were inextricably mingled, and the direction of the goal was uncertain. If you rode into a village, you might find it occupied by a highland regiment or a squad of Uhlans. If you dimly discerned troops marching side by side with you in the dawning, it was by no means certain that they would prove to be your friends. On the other hand, it was never safe to assume that a battalion which you saw hastily entrenching itself against your approach was German. It might belong to your own brigade. There was no front and no rear, so direction counted for nothing. The country swarmed with troops, which had been left in the air, owing to their own too rapid advance or the equally rapid retirement of their supporters with scattered details trying to join their units or with dispatch riders hunting for a peripatetic divisional headquarters snipers shot both sides impartially it was almost upsetting well as already indicated the trench system has put that all right the trenches now run continuously a long irregular but perfectly definite line of cleavage from the north sea to the vosges everybody has been carefully sorted out human beings on one side germans on the other Nothing could be more suitable. The result is an agreeable blend of war and peace. This week, for instance, our battalion has been undergoing a rest cure a few miles from the hottest part of the firing line. We had a fairly heavy spell of work last week. In the morning, we wash our clothes and perform a few mild martial exercises. In the afternoon, we sleep in all degrees of dishabille under the trees in the orchard. In the evening we play football or bathe in the canal or lie on our backs on the grass watching our aeroplanes buzzing home to roost, attended by German shrapnel. We could not have done this in the autumn. Now, thanks to our trenches, a few miles away we are as safe here as in the wilds of Argyllshire or West Kensington. But there are drawbacks to everything. The fact is, a trench is that, most uninteresting of human devices, a compromise. It is neither satisfactory as a domicile nor efficient as a weapon of defense. The most luxuriant dugout, the most artistic window box. These, in spite of all biased assertions to the contrary, compare unfavorably with a flat in Knightsbridge. On the other hand, the knowledge that you are keeping yourself tolerably immune from the assaults of your enemy is heavily discounted by the fact that the enemy is equally immune from yours. In other words, you get no farther with a trench and the one thing which we are all anxious to do is bring this war to a speedy and gory conclusion and get home to hot baths and regular meals for reasons foreshadowed last month we find that we are committed to an indefinite period of trench life like everyone else certainly we are starting at the bottom of the ladder these trenches are badly sided badly constructed difficult of access from the rear and swarming with large fat unpleasant flies of the blue bottle variety they go to sleep chiefly upon the ceiling of one dugout during the short hours of darkness but for twenty hours out of twenty-four they are very busy indeed they divide their attention between stray carrion and our rations 
If you sit still for five minutes, they also settle upon you like pins in a pincushion. Then, when face, hands, and knees can endure no more, and the inevitable convulsive wriggle occurs, they rise in a vociferous swarm, only to settle again when the victim becomes quiescent. To these, high explosives are a welcome relief. The trenches themselves are no garden city, like those at Armentieres. They were sighted and dug in the dark, not many weeks ago, to secure 200 yards of French territory recovered from the Boche by bomb and bayonet. The captured trench lies behind us now and serves as our second line. They are muddy. You come to water at three feet, and at one end, owing to their concave formation, are open to enfilade. The parapet in many places is too low. If you make it higher with sandbags, you offer the enemy a comfortable target. If you deepen the trench, you turn it into a running stream. Therefore, long-legged subalterns crawl painfully past these danger spots on all fours. Then there is Zacchaeus, the sniper. We call him by this name because he lives up a tree. There is a row of pollarded willows standing parallel to our front, a hundred and fifty yards away. Up or in one of these lives Zacchaeus. We have never seen him, but we know he is there, because if you look over the top of the parapet, he shoots you through the head. We do not know which of the trees he lives in. There are nine of them, and every morning we comb them out one by one with a machine gun. But all in vain, Zacchaeus merely crawls away into the standing corn behind his trees and waits till we have finished. Then he comes back and tries to shoot the machine gun officer. He has not succeeded yet, but he sticks to his task with gentle persistence. He is evidently of a persevering rather than vindictive disposition. The day's work in the trenches begins about nine o'clock the night before. Darkness having fallen, various parties still out into the no-man's land beyond the parapet. There are numerous things to be done. The barbed wire has been broken up by shrapnel and must be repaired. The whole position in front of the wire must be patrolled to prevent the enemy from creeping forward in the dark. The corn has grown to an uncomfortable height in places, so a fatigue party is told off to cut it. Surely the strangest piece of harvesting that the annals of agriculture can record. On the left, the muffled clinking of picks and shovels announces that a sap is in course of construction. Those incorrigible nightbirds, the royal engineers, are making it for the machine gunners who, in the fullness of time, will convey their voluble weapon to its forward extremity and loose off a belt or two in the direction of a rather dangerous hollow midway between the trenches, from which of late mysterious sounds of digging and guttural talking have been detected by the officer who lies in the listening post in front of the barbed wire entanglement, drawing secrets from the bowels of the earth by means of a microphone. Behind the firing trench, even greater activity prevails. Damage done to the parapet by shell fire is being repaired. Positions and emplacements are being constantly improved. Communication trenches widened or made more secure. Down these trenches, fatigue parties are filing and ammunition from the limbered wagons which are waiting in the shadow of a wood, perhaps a mile back. It is at this hour, too, that the wounded, who have been lying pathetically, cheerful and patient in the dressing station in the reserve trench, are smuggled to the field ambulance, probably to find themselves safe in a London hospital within twenty-four hours. Lastly, under the kindly cloak of night, we bury the dead. Meanwhile, within various stifling dugouts in the firing trench or support trench, overheated company commanders are dictating reports or filling in returns. 
There is the casualty return, and a report on the doings of the enemy, and another report of one's own doings, and a report on the direction of the wind, and so on. All this literature has to be sent to battalion headquarters by 1 a.m., either by orderly or telephone. There it is collated and condensed and forwarded to the brigade, which submits it to the same process and sends it on. You must not imagine, however, that all this night work is performed in gross darkness. On the contrary, there is abundance of illumination, and by a pretty thought each illuminates the others. We perform our nocturnal tasks in front of and behind the firing trench, amid a perfect hail of star shells and magnesium lights, topped up at times by a searchlight, all supplied by our obliging friend, the Hun. We, on our part, do our best to return these graceful compliments. The curious and uncanny part of it all is that there is no firing. During these brief hours, there exists an informal truce, founded on the principles of live and let live. It would be an easy business to wipe out that working party over there by the barbed wire with a machine gun. It would be child's play to shell the road behind the enemy's trenches, crowded as it must be with ration wagons and water carts into a blood-stained wilderness. But so long as each side confines itself to purely defensive and recuperative work, there is little or no interference. End of section 49. This recording is in the public domain.